Welcome to the Voices of Aging podcast, where you learn more about aging through experts. We are the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group, or ASIC, a student-led collaborative organization for the study of aging at the University of Minnesota. Every episode, we feature guests working in different aging-related areas, and they share their experiences and wisdom. We release two episodes every month, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in to learn more about aging every time you hit play. This is Madeline with the Voices of Aging podcast. Today, our guest is Matt Bauer. Matt is a genetic counselor at the University of Minnesota. Thank you so much for joining me today, Matt. Oh, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Let's start um, just by having you introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into the field of genetic counseling. Okay, so I am a genetic counselor at University of Minnesota Health. And genetic counseling isn't always something that people are immediately familiar with. So I, I like to sort of explain it's sort of at the intersection of where the science of genetics impacts patient care, humans, and families. So I work with people who have inherited neurologic diseases, and I'm often the person who is meeting with them up front to try to figure out whether or not the condition in their family looks genetic, and also meeting with patients on the back end after testing to help them to appreciate what their results mean for them in terms of making a diagnosis. But often with genetic diseases, I'm also working to help them understand how those diagnoses impact their family members, whether that be their children, their siblings, or other family members with genetic conditions. A diagnosis for one person often impacts many people in the family. Um, I originally got into this. I knew I loved genetics. I studied biology and thought about careers like medical school teaching, but was really looking for something really focused on genetics and really had that direct, meaningful impact in interaction with patients and families. And so like many people, I sort of fortuitously ran into this. And um, through a job I was working at when I moved back to the Twin Cities, I ended up working with genetic counselors and realized it was a really great fit right at the intersection of the science of genetics and patient care and how this information impacts patients. Thank you so much for going through your background and, and interest with us. Um, and you did cover some scenarios that um, would cause someone to see a genetic counselor. So I think that's helpful for our audience. I would imagine that given the popularity of at-home genetic testing kits within the past maybe five to 10 years, your work has been affected. Um, could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly been an explosion when you look at the things like Ancestry, 23andMe, all these direct-to-consumer genetic tests, and that's kind of the term we use. People have been able to access increasing amounts of genetic information without having to go through a formal healthcare provider setting. Um, for a long time, a lot of this was sort of considered quote unquote recreational. So it was things like you could get your earwax type or your, you know, do you have the gene for curly hair or not? And also ancestry, um, where in the world your biological ancestors were from, and also information about who specifically you might be related to. So making connections to family members. 
So for a long time, I mean, it really was focused on this more quote unquote recreational aspects, but a few laboratories have made forays into health information. The earliest thing I know of, just because it impacts neurology where I work, was laboratories giving risk assessments for Parkinson's disease. And there's been some fits and starts about, you know, with the FDA, with oversight, compliance, about, you know, those types of labs being able to provide this to patients. And it has moved forward and patients can get some amount of health information from testing. Usually these are not laboratories we use because, at least for right now, the tests that they're doing tend to be focused on very specific subsets of genetic variants, and they're not the same comprehensive test that we would do in a patient who's really highly suspected of having a genetic condition. So in terms of what we order, we aren't using these very much, but we certainly see a lot of patients who come in who've accessed this information on their own and they have questions about it. And so we have to give people a little bit of context about what the difference is between that information and the type of information that we would get from a clinical report. And you know, just help them to understand whether that testing really answers the question that they're seeking to ask or whether there's some additional testing we can do. I think it's also, to me, it's done, made us do a little bit of soul searching in the profession because I think we've always sort of operated with this notion that we're the gatekeepers of genetic information. And so if somebody wanted to get information about their genetics, they had to go through someone like us who is sort of an expert gatekeeper to get that information. And I know for some of my colleagues, I mean, the idea that patients can sort of go around that and get this information, there's obviously dangers that they might misunderstand it. But I also think it makes us ask a question of ourselves, like, do we need to be that up, upfront gatekeeper for all this genetic information? Or are there certain things that maybe there could be benefits on having this broadly accessible to patients so that they don't need to go through those hurdles of seeing a healthcare provider? Wow, it's really fascinating to hear about that emerging intersection and how that all works. I would love to hear more about your work as it pertains to the field of aging. I mean, I think I can mm -hmm. sort of assume that if you're telling someone they have a neurodegenerative disease, for example, um, that applies in some ways, but I'd love to hear your perspective. Yeah, I know that's, I mean, the main topic of the podcast, and I was thinking a bit about that because like, when you ask someone like me about the genetics of aging, so to speak, and one of my colleagues actually works on a study that is looking at the genetics of people who live a long time, I think in some sense, like I, I'm not directly working with the idea, if you think about the genetics of aging in terms of the question of, well, why do some of us live 100 years? Why do some of us only live 60 years or 50 years? And so in that way of thinking about it, sort of the genetics of how we age, you know, that, that is more a world of looking at the intersection of many, many sometimes common, sometimes rare variants, their interaction with environment. And so it's not often the world of someone like me who works with inherited genetic diseases. If you sort of step away from that one step closer to kind of what I'm doing, and you think about the fact as many of us age, you know, we still say it's, I mean, it's abnormal, but it's not at all unexpected that a certain proportion of us are going to get something like Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease. And so if you think about a group of like 50 people and how they're going to age over time, I think 
we all sort of inherently understand, you know, a certain reasonably large percentage of those people are going to develop something like Parkinson's as Alzheimer or Alzheimer's as part of aging. And so different from the question of like, well, what makes some of us grow old faster than others? Here we're getting at, well, what makes some of us develop a disease like Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease as part of the aging process? And I think there you can get a little bit more into some specific genetic variations. People have identified common genetic risk variants that may make some people more susceptible to Alzheimer's, some people more susceptible to Parkinson's. And sometimes these are actually some of the types of things that are looked at with those direct-to-consumer tests that you're looking at, um, that you were talking about earlier, that they're often looking for these sort of common genetic variations that may give some people a sense of, am I a little bit more likely than other people to get Alzheimer's or Parkinson's? So we sort of began with like the idea of genetics of aging, moving into the idea of genetics of why do some people get like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's as they age? Then you sort of get over into my world, which is different from the general genetics of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. So even though we know that many, many people will develop those, I think it's very unusual in the general population <clears throat> to be a person who knows ahead of time that they inevitably will get one of those conditions. Um, and also that they will get those at a very young age. And when you move into things like that, that is the world that I tend to work in. So I see people who develop dementias, movement disorders, other types of neurologic diseases, often at very young ages. So I, I see patients quite often in their 30s, 40s, 50s, sometimes 20s, sometimes pediatric. So they're people who are getting these diseases, but getting them at a markedly younger age than you'd expect. And I think the other important difference, as opposed to typical Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, if they know that these are in their family, they have an ability to ask a question of, do I have the gene or not? And by extension, am I going to get that? And so different from the rest of us, these are people who sometimes have the power to know ahead of time they're the one that's going to get Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um and kind of related to that, I think there are a variety of models that exist in terms of how to approach these conversations with patients. Um, how do you personally approach conversations when you're telling someone they have a diagnosis that might be difficult for them to deal with? I think if I broke it into a couple steps, I, I think it's important. Often I'm meeting with people before we do any testing and I think that is just, it's really critical to get a sense of where they're at. So for somebody who's got some neurologic symptoms, are they aware that they've got these symptoms? You know, there are times where we see patients who clearly are manifesting cognitive or movement changes to us, but they themselves don't perceive that, or maybe their family members have noticed. So I think it's important to get a sense of what their own awareness is of their symptoms and that tells me if we make one of these diagnoses, is it going to be a surprise or a shock? Or are they coming into this fully prepared and expecting to hear that they've got this disease? I think it's also important, especially for genetic things, to get a sense of what the story of the genetic condition is in the family. So when I think about things like Huntington's disease, you know, we know that it's a very clearly dominant. If a parent's got it, each of their kids is a 50-50 risk. 
So that doesn't change from person to person, family to family. But what sometimes does change is how does the family talk about it? Do they share information? Is it something that's hidden in the family, a shameful secret or something that's talked about openly? So I think, again, getting that sense up front before we're doing testing of what that patient's sort of perception of their situation is, what their expectation is of what they're going to hear, and kind of what the story of that condition is in their family is really, really important. And then I, you know, once we're doing testing, I like to get a sense from them of, you know, how, how is best for you to get results. And oftentimes with some of these, we will try to schedule something to go over the results in person. Other times, maybe not in person, but I want to get a sense of, I mean, what is the best way to go over this information with you? If I've got a difficult or positive diagnosis, so a genetic test that says we found a genetic condition that isn't going to be fixable or curable, I think it's really critical to try to say it briefly and clearly up front as part of the conversation. So rather than sort of hiding behind a bunch of medical words and talking forever and ever, I, I usually like to begin with a pretty succinct, clear statement that we've found something genetic that explains their symptoms and maybe another sentence or two about what we expect and then just let them let them kind of process that or sit with that for a minute and see if they've got questions. Um, and then from there, I kind of let them take the lead. I mean, some people are information people and they're going to follow up with a bunch of questions. Sometimes people take it and they just need to sit with it and absorb it for a while or maybe absorb it for a week and come up with questions. So I think kind of following their lead after that. Continuing with how you approach these conversations, um, as well as considering um, thinking about aging, when you tell someone they have a serious condition, for example, like Mm -hmm. Huntington's or Parkinson's, how much of that conversation focuses on quality of life through the aging process or through the end of that disease course? Are you providing... Um, like advice or resources? How does that look? Yeah, I think, especially for neurologic diseases, where we really don't have an immediate expectation that we're going to have a cure or treatment. Um, There's certainly things on the horizon with gene therapies, but for the immediate future, you know, if somebody says, what can I do to fix it? There isn't a a cure or treatment. And really the best people can do is, is to figure out how do I live the best life I can? How do I keep doing the things I love to do? How do I maintain that quality of life? Um, Often with a lot of the conditions I work with, they impact people's mobility and balance. And it's a conversation about how do I continue to do the things I love to do? If I love riding my bike, but I can't do that safely, are there other ways like recumbent bicycle or, you know, people look at working out in pools, things like that. Are there things they can do to remain physically active and healthy and also at the same time remaining engaged socially? And it's really hard. You know, I don't necessarily always have objective data saying if you do this and this and this exercise, or if you continue to go out and see friends and do things with your friends are going to do better subjectively over 20 years you can see people who make those positive choices to kind of figure out how to live a good life doing a lot better. 
Um, so I, I think very much we try to encourage people to say, to see like, this is going to progress. There isn't anything we can do to fundamentally fix the symptoms. And really the main thing you've got in your control is what can you do to keep yourself healthy and keep doing the things you love to do. And I, I appreciate on my end, it's easier for me to say that than for it, than it is for them to do that because often they're losing abilities that are just so key to who they are. Absolutely. And I would imagine it's also very patient specific. So there isn't going to be a one size fits all answer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I also am curious to learn about the ethical considerations you have when talking about a new diagnosis with a patient. Um, for example, what if a patient doesn't want to know the diagnostic information or doesn't want to share it with their family? Yeah. So kind of a couple questions there. I think one would hope you'd address the first of those up front before you do the testing. And, and so with genetic testing, there's a really big emphasis on informed consent. Um, the idea that if, if you're doing a genetic test, you're doing it because that patient has decided that it is a test that is going to give them information that they want. And we aren't just running genetic tests without telling them and then surprising them with results. And that's not to say that sometimes, even though they consent to testing, they aren't surprised by what we find. But I think we really try to address that issue of whether or not they actually want this information before we embark on genetic testing. Because it's tricky. I mean, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak. If we find something genetic and it's information that the patient and the family didn't want, it's a little too late at the point where you've got that information. So I think we are very, very sensitive to what patients want up front and use that to guide whether or not we pursue genetic testing. Your other question, I mean, is, is a very, very interesting one, which is what if patients don't want to share information with families? And that really gets at, I mean, what is unique about genetics in some sense? For almost any other diagnosis you get, you know, if you, if you break your arm, you go to the doctor and you've got a fracture, well, that doesn't inherently impact anyone else in your family. With genetic diagnoses, if I make a diagnosis of, say, Huntington's disease, it inherently, directly impacts your children, your siblings, your parents. It has a very real bearing on their risks. And it's, I believe, very critical to share that information. Sometimes there are people who don't want to share that. Again, as much as I can ahead of time, I try to think about some of these things with patients so that they aren't a surprise. So if we're looking for dominant neurologic diseases, as part of my upfront pretest conversation, I'm bringing up the fact we may find something that means your siblings or your children are at risk. And if this isn't information that they want or don't want to share, sometimes we back up and say, well, is this a test you want to be doing? Um, there are some genetic conditions out there, and the easy, easiest examples are things like hereditary cancer risks, where if you find it in one person in the family, it has direct bearing on risks for other people in the family and interventions they can take to reduce their risk. And so there are sometimes times with those types of conditions where you can make a case to legal ethics that if a patient refuses to share that information, that you have an obligation to share it, 
because it could prevent a real harm to those other family members. It gets trickier with neurology where I work because for the vast majority of things we're talking about, there's no medical medical intervention that will prevent it or allow people to avoid it. And so it's harder to sort of override that patient preference. That said, I think I very, very strongly guide patients that I do think it is the right thing to do to share it. And maybe it's not something you can do right now because of your relationship with that person, or maybe it's something you don't want to do directly. But there's another way like writing a letter or sharing some information, another way that can help. Because I feel like eventually, secrets don't last, and people find out the truth. And so if people don't want to tell their children about their genetic diagnosis, I feel like eventually they're going to figure it out. And so I think it's really important for patients, even when it's a hard conversation, to figure out how they want to have that conversation so that their kids, their siblings hear the information from them. Um, lots of other ethical issues you could go into, but you kind of picked on those two. And those are my thoughts on those. Yeah, that's great. Um, thank you so much for sharing your perspective and expertise. As we wrap up here, many of our listeners are students. If anyone is interested in learning more about the field of genetic counseling, do you have any resources, websites, the department at the U perhaps that you would direct them to? Yeah, so the National Society of Genetic Counselors is the national organization. Um, that's nsgc.org. They have a lot of information there for like people are thinking about this as a career. Um, there is a Minnesota chapter, the Minnesota Genetic Counseling Association, and sometimes they'll have events and things like that listed on their website. We do have a graduate program here, one of, one of the original ones in the country. So we've got a very, very long track record, and I think a very excellent reputation. Um, so the Minnesota, um, University of Minnesota Genetic Counseling Graduate Program is a great program. I think, I mean, some, there's not many of us who sometimes trying to find someone who can sit and answer a few questions or let you shadow is difficult. But if you can, if you can find a way to talk to somebody and figure out, just sort of have a Q&A and just say, what, what is it like to be a genetic counselor? Be able to express, you know, here's what I love to do. Is this the type of thing you're doing? Um, I think those conversations can be valuable, but it's, it's really a great field for people who really, really love the science of genetics, but also are really deeply tied to the conversations, sometimes difficult, that we have giving patients this information, helping them cope with it, helping them find resources, helping them communicate it to their family. So people who really like those two aspects, I think it's a really great profession. Thank you so much, Matt. I've really enjoyed our conversation. All right. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. This podcast is brought to you by ASIC, the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. Follow Voices of Aging and ASIC on social media for more information about the episodes and guests from the podcast and to learn more about us as a student group. See you next time.